Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, October 12th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Hurricane Delta brought strong winds and heavy rains to parts of Mississippi. We assess the impact with MEMA. Then... I don't know why we have to watch this movie over and over again. We already know what happened, so let's just turn it off. The state's top health officials expressed concerns over trends in coronavirus transmission data. Plus, a new report reveals how Mississippi compares to other states in voting accessibility. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hurricane Delta swept through parts of Mississippi over the weekend, bringing with it damaging winds and heavy rains. Delta was the third Category 2 or stronger storm to hit the Gulf region since August. While the state dodged direct hits in each instance, the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency says Delta delivered significant impacts to the state. MEMA Director Greg Michelle shares more with our Michael Guidry. We had... uh enormous amount of power outages, actually more than we had anticipated. Um, wind bands did affect, uh, you know, our southwestern portions of Mississippi pretty severely. We had about 95,000 power outages uh, by Saturday morning and still had about fifty to 60,000 remaining even by Sunday. So uh, the damage to the power lines was a little bit more severe than we thought. We had some power poles that had actually you know, been snapped. Um, either due to wind or the uh, trees falling on them. Of course, that takes longer to restore power. Um, so had that, we pretty much uh, have recovered from that as of today. We're somewhere around 5,000 power outages, so utility crews done a great job getting that back, getting power back restored. Uh, we did have some damage to homes with trees being down, a lot of trees down. Um, last, of course, damage assessments will be ongoing today and probably throughout the rest of the week. It looks like we had somewhere, as of right now, somewhere around 50 homes that were damaged uh, to some degree. I know three homes were uh, considered destroyed in Adams County, and uh, and then damages, you know, down from there. So it was uh, mainly wind damage, wind damage, rain, of course, but wind damage was the biggest uh, effect that we had on both uh, personal property and then our utilities. You mentioned Adams County was was that southwestern part of the state the most directly and heavily impacted by the storm? Yeah, Ad, well, Adams County, Amick County, Wilkeson County were kind of where the majority, it seemed like, were kind of got the brunt of it. But, you know, we had damage, uh, you know, all over, even over uh, uh, Pike County, Jefferson County, um, Lincoln County, Kapai County. You know, we had damage all all throughout southwest Mississippi. But uh, Wilkeson, Amick, and Adams seemed to be somewhat right there on the brunt. Those were 
where we had the most power outages uh, as of Saturday morning and concentrated utility damage seemed to be uh, the, the most in those three counties. What's the next step? I know that the Trump administration uh, approved the, the declaration of emergency. Uh, what's the next step as far as you know FEMA's role in helping these damaged areas? Yeah, well, so right now our next step is going to be for us to conduct those damage assessments we just talked about. Those will start with the local uh, emergency managers at the county level, then we will come back in as a state agency and validate those damage assessments. And then, and then of course, if, it, if we have damages that um, – that surpass the uh, thresholds for public assistance, then we'll be requesting uh, through FEMA uh, for a, a da- disaster grant uh, under public assistance. The declaration that we received prior to landfall, that was a pre-landfall emergency measures declaration, allows us to pay for uh, you know any expenses that are required to get ready for the storm. So the next step would be to submit and request for a federal declaration should our damages uh, get to that point. We've heard you say a lot about the mobilization of assets and having them ready to go both here and and to assist our neighbors. We've missed three big ones so far, um, and uh, and our neighbors have needed help. So, what is the status of of our assets? Yep. So we we um, we did uh, uh, we got assets. I mean, of course, the status of our assets right now we we don't have any assets that we've deployed uh, through our EMAC agreements through MEMA as of right now. We are prepared to to uh, provide more resources. Typically, um, Louisiana will request our heavy lift rotary wing assets that Mississippi has that Louisiana does not. Um, they have not yet requested that. We've kind of been on hold awaiting that. Uh, high water rescue assets as well. Uh, but, but yes, as always, you know, we, we will respond uh, when needed. Uh, but typically what we do along the coastal states, uh, even Louisiana, but they're in a different region. We have obviously have a very close partnership with them, uh, but we are also very mindful of the fact that we're all, you know, potentially in the same boat. But Louisiana has just been hit very hard this hurricane season, so we communicate very closely with. Uh, well, I communicate very closely with Jim Waskin, who's my counterpart there, and we talk, and, and and he knows that anything that he needs that I've got, we'll send that way. Uh, thus far, they've been able to handle uh, their response either with their resources or using states outside our region. And you mentioned hurricane season. we still got a little over uh, a month left, about a month and a half left. What's the message to Mississippians? I mean, we're not used to seeing too many major storms in October. Uh, are we out of the clear? Uh, I would say that we need to remain vigilant. We've still got about 30 days, really, uh, of, of alert watching. Uh, so I would my message would be we've been fortunate. Uh, but we need to remain vigilant. Uh, there is a system that we are watching, even as of right now today, in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, it does not appear that the conditions are going to be favorable for that storm uh, to increase in strength, but it's just a, a, mind, uh, a, a reminder that uh, we're not out of woods yet. Still got about 30 days remaining. Our hurricane seasons tend to go even into November, so we just need to watch, remain to be prepared, and I uh, just, just want to say I really appreciate uh, Mississippians and their patience in dealing with all these near misses and doing what they needed to do. We just need to remain postured for at least about another month get through this season. Colonel Greg Michelle, Director of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. Thank you so much, Director Michelle. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, the state's top health officials express concerns over trends in coronavirus transmission data. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
mpbonline.org is your destination for everything Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You can catch up on past shows from Think Radio, listen live anytime, or become a sustaining member, all from one place. So what are you waiting for? Get connected now at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi is one of the top 20 states with the most new cases of the coronavirus per capita in the U.S. And health officials say a big upswing of COVID-19 cases could be on the horizon. During a Mississippi State Medical Association roundtable, state epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers cautioned residents not to focus too much on any single day report. But he also says the curve in cases is changing. Those daily reports that we that we provide, um, you, you need to understand, and I know everybody does, that those are not cases that necessarily occur the, the day before or even in the few days before because there can be some reporting delays. Um, but if you look at our epicurve, which, which does uh, demonstrate the cases by their event date, um, we are starting to see some leveling off and some some trending up in in our case numbers now. Uh, We anticipate that that'll probably continue. Um, We are starting to see some uh, uh, increased numbers of cases that are currently in the hospital with confirmed COVID. Uh, We're seeing uh, uh, increased new admissions into the hospital setting. Um, You know, all indicators right now are pointing to the fact that I think we're on the horizon of, of having another another big upswing. The recent trends represent a reversal in course compared to the previous two months. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says the reason is enough for health, that reason is enough for healthcare providers to prepare for a surge. I don't know why we have to watch this movie over and over again. We already know what happened, so let's just turn it off. You know, we have more cases, we have more hospitalizations. We have more deaths, and this is our death differential. This is the the total number of excess deaths, right? People are dying from coronavirus. It's not that people are getting called coronavirus and they have a car wreck, whatever kind of crazy nonsense that is. People are dying in Mississippi. Over 3,000 people have died who would not be dead. You know, um, so for the docs and everybody, you know, y'all please get ready, okay? Um, You know, we're starting to see it coming. The hospitals are pretty full already with non-COVID stuff. I've already warned the hospitals to start thinking about transitioning to non, uh, non electives that don't require admissions. Um, as the physicians, I think if y'all can start thinking about that too, um, you know, I know it makes everybody very angry whenever we start, uh, you know, um, restricting elective surgeries. But now's the time to prevent us having to do anything because we don't want to do anything. We want to leave it in the control of the physicians, in control of the health systems to sort of manage that load, but we can't have people not having access to care. Um, so, you know, just please, please be thinking about it right now. I, this, I mean, this is, this is pretty ample warning uh, that we might be looking at some additional stress in the healthcare system. The increase in cases and hospitalizations began in early October. Around the same time, the statewide mask mandate expired. Health officials say it's difficult to pinpoint a date or spark for the upward trend, but encourages residents to continue to wear masks. 
It's going to be hard to, to tie it um, exactly to a specific date or a specific thing, but we know that um, I'm going to tell you what I tell people is, is whether or not there's an executive order that, that mandates masks, wearing masks are the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do to, to protect those people around you. It's the right thing to do to protect your family and especially those people in vulnerable settings. You know, so far with the increasing cases that we're seeing, we haven't seen an increase in deaths, but we know that, that, that that's potentially coming because that sort of lags a couple of three weeks behind those increases. And so we may be well looking at more deaths again, too. Cases and quarantines in school communities are also increasing. Dr. Dobbs says the step of quarantining seemingly healthy students is important in breaking the chain of transmission. It's once a day someone gets calls or sends me an email, you know, because someone's missing um, uh, a senior year experience. And, and, you know, and I understand how hard that is, but the reason that we're doing it is because someone down the road doesn't die, right? I mean, and that sounds kind of crazy, but the reason we quarantine folks, it's not because all the quarantine folks are going to get sick. And, and people get kind of frustrated, like sitting around waiting for their kids to get sick. I mean, hopefully they won't, but it's to stop that train of transmission, that chain reaction, so that, that the teacher doesn't get it, that the aide doesn't get it, that the kid doesn't get it down the street, who then gives it to his grandma, or, heaven forbid, um, one of the kids gets it and dies, because, I mean, one of the, we were on a call today with superintendents, and they said they were very supportive of all the quarantine stuff, and they said, you know, we're all pretty relaxed about this until a kid dies. And then it's going to be the entire situation is going to be very different. We already had um, a teenager die who was a school-age kid. The concerning upswing also comes as one of the state's largest public events takes place. The state fair enters its fifth day of action today. The fair was originally going to be a mask-required event, but Dr. Dobbs says an abrupt change occurred. The safety protocols that we received and reviewed, even though we had some concerns about having such a big group together, it was masks are mandatory for everybody in there. And and I don't really understand it, but the day of the fair, um, the, uh, the Agriculture Commission just removed that, right? And, and I'll say I was, I was extremely disappointed because I, I think it was a, um, a bad idea. Now, I don't think that the, the fair has been much attended, and I do think that maybe um, there's some consideration that if they feel like they need to, they would do a mandatory mask situation. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think it would be the right thing to do to have mandated masks in those sort of scenarios. Kind of like at the football games, you have to wear a mask everywhere except for if you're seated, separated from everybody. Um, and I think that's a pretty good analogy. Uh, but, you know, um, I, I'm not going to go to the fair. Um, I'm not going to encourage anyone to go to the fair. Um, I'm worried about the safety of the fair, um, in part because of that. Over 104,000 people in Mississippi have contracted the coronavirus, and more than 3,000 have died. Coming up, a new report reveals how Mississippi compares to other states in voting accessibility. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 
or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A newly released report by the Democracy Initiative shows Mississippi is the only state in the country that hasn't provided people with more voting options due to the coronavirus pandemic. The coalition of 75 national organizations is working to help states make voting easier and safer. Wendy Fields is with the Democracy Initiative. She tells our Desiree Frazier in this historic election, voters need expanded access to the ballot. This is a historic election, um, and uh, as many as 160 million people will vote this year. Uh, That would be 66% turnout of eligible voters, the highest in more than 100 years of our election. Um, Voters want our government to respond to this historic demand, and we are winning. And what we've been saying to our partners and nationally is that um, people, you know, in, in this environment of chaos and orchestrated mass voter suppression, it's really critical to know the rules, make a plan, and vote early. And that will allow us to make sure that each work, each voter has access to the ballot, can cast their and ensure that it is counted. So this report was put together to help identify, to recognize the progress that has been made um, and that um, what obstacles there is to exist and um, instruct us on how to overcome them. What do you see as the obstacles now? Here we are. Vote by mail is available in 45 states and the District of Columbia. Um, Early voting is available in 43 states and D.C. 40 states and D.C. offer all three voting options, vote by mail, early voting, and 21 states have same-day voter registration. These numbers represent huge progress since 2016 and 18 or even the beginning of 2020, frankly. So as to respond to your question, here are a few roadblocks facing voters. Voter suppression is real. Purged voter lists, that's a concern, restrictive voter ID laws, signature and notary requirements, and many more ugly tricks intended to take away our rights. Um, And so for us, the pandemic is really challenging. Um, for folks, we want to make sure that they have safe voting, that folks are on the list and they know they've been let, that they're registered. In Mississippi, unfortunately, it's the last in having voting options. Um, unfortunately, um, we do know, recognize that as other states, they have absentee ballot with an excuse. But in the pandemic, they don't have choices. That's your choice is to go in person. Um, So other states have either early voting or no excuse, vote by mail. What can be done about that? Well, to the credit of the local activists, um, it is important that um, I think many of them filed lawsuits. They've been, like other states, lobbying and talking to elected officials. But the governor has a role here. The election administrators have a role here. We are seeing a, across the country, a historic demand to vote. And these elected officials have a responsibility to meet that demand. So they can make some simple adjustments now 
to really address the safety issues around the public health crisis and um, make those necessary adjustments. Wendy Fields with the Democracy Initiative. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Desiree. And thank you for shining a positive light on this very critical issue. It's a historic election. The report is called Roadblocks and Remedies, the State of Voting. Several civil rights organizations filed lawsuits over the issue, including one in federal court filed by the NAACP. It would remove some absentee voting requirements. Corey Wiggins with the state NAACP is concerned about efforts to suppress voting. There have been advancements made in other states uh, to increase and make sure that people have access and more access uh, to the ballot in November. Uh, but we hadn't seen that those same type of advancements here in Mississippi, uh, in Mississippi. And so I think the thing is, what it really speaks to is, is as we continue to have this culture, uh, that we want to limit access to the ballot versus making sure that people have access to the ballot. Uh, and I think in the middle of a pandemic, uh, when there's other opportunities to ensure early voting, vote by mail, we haven't taken any type of progress to ensure that we can protect the public health while at the same time having a uh, an election where people get to participate in democracy. The Mississippi legislature, although it was an off and on again session because of the pandemic, did allow people who are diagnosed with COVID-19 and their caretaker to vote absentee ballot. But that's not satisfactory. Well, what they did was, not mistaken the language, is, is that you have to be physician quarantined um, to be able to do that. So it's not it's not a case of, of you just saying you have this or have that. It, you have to have a physician quarantined. And some of the conversation has been around, well, ultimately, what does that mean? So it was more it was more that in itself was more limiting uh, than even some of the other things that some of the other states have done. The commander-in-chief of the United States um, has assailed mail-in voting. How much of an impact do you think that has had on Mississippians? Well, I think what that, I mean, I think the way it has impacted Mississippians is that we have leaders who, who tend to align with the, with the president. Um, and not just in terms of, uh, of rhetoric, but I think if you look at our history um, here in Mississippi, whether it's having enacting voter ID, uh, enacting other types of things uh, that 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 leaves us with an outdated system of voting. Uh, and in this case, I think when you look at with it being in a pandemic, on a healthy process. And so I think we have we have look Mississippi has been at the center around access to the ballot and voting rights for a number of years. Uh, going back to the 50s and 60s. Uh, and I think this just is a continuation of this constant struggle that we've had here to ensure that all folks in Mississippi are able to access the ballot. Do you really think you're cutting through the all of the noise? Um, I'll say this. We're trying. It's not for if, if we're able to come through and we're able to cut through, we'll know by, by record levels of turnout, record levels of engagement. Uh, but we're trying. What do you say to people say my vote doesn't count? Well, I mean, all you got to do is is just look around in your community, in your neighborhood. If you got questions in your community about uh, about your roads, your bridges, uh, if you if you are not happy and pleased with our criminal justice system, uh, if you're not pleased by the level of funding or resources that your schools are getting, um, you know, we don't you know, even, you know, 
there's just all this thing, and we know this is a presidential election. But the thing is, this year you have some communities who are electing school board members. You have some communities, all communities are electing election commissioners. We'll be elect, be voting on judges, Senate races, uh, House races, right? All of those, these things that matter to us in our community about how we want our community to look, feel, smell, is all decided upon by our lawmakers that we put in office. So, yes, your vote count. It's not a question about my vote don't count. The question should be centered around and based upon, like, what do, what do I want for me and for my community, for my family? And, and take that step to ensure that you're getting that in the process by casting your vote. Thank you so much, Corey Wiggins, Executive Director of the NAACP of Mississippi. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. Mississippi allows absentee voting with specific excuses, one of which was added this year for those quarantined by a doctor because of the coronavirus. Qualified residents have until October 31st to vote in person absentee. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.